to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Hey there, Sarah McKenzie here. I'm your host of the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. You've got episode 103, and I'm really glad you're here. I have a wonderful nonfiction picture book, author and illustrator to introduce to you today. Actually, I highly doubt I'm introducing her to you today. If you are not already familiar with her work, I'd be surprised. Before we do that, I keep forgetting to tell you here on the podcast, did you hear that the brand new book I wrote this last year, The Read Aloud Family, Making Meaningful and Lasting Connections with Your Kids, was a USA Today bestseller? That's kind of fun, right? (laughs) Okay, never mind. That's really fun. I really appreciate all of you who have purchased the book and have told your friends and family about how they can get inspired to connect with their kids and make some meaningful and lasting memories with them through the power of reading aloud. I hope that you find in that book something for you in your journey wherever you are. Whether you're just getting started reading aloud or you've been reading aloud for decades, there should be book recommendations and ideas, tips, and some encouragement in there for you regardless of where you are on your read aloud journey. You can find it anywhere books are sold or head to thereadaloudfamily.com. Okay, so let's get into today's show because I've been really excited to chat with our guest. Gail Gibbons has been called the master of children's nonfiction. You will probably recognize several of her books just by seeing the style of them. I know I can spy a Gibbons book from a mile away. She created her first book at the age of four and began taking art lessons soon after. And since then, she's created, I'm not sure how many books. I know over 170. We're going to have to ask her. She says she's always been curious and enjoys going right to the source to learn more about topics. Today, we brought her on to the Read Aloud Revival to talk about making her wonderful nonfiction for children. Gail, welcome to the Read Aloud Revival. Well, thank you very much. So tell me about that first book you wrote when you were four. Do you remember what it was? My mom saved all of my artwork starting from when I was about three. I did. It was only four pages long. And it was I couldn't write yet, but I was doing a lot of drawing and painting. And it ended up almost being like a visual animation. And it started up. It started off with a spider at the top of the page. And then when you turn the page, the spider had dropped down from a thread a little bit. And then when you got to the third page, it was about two-thirds of the way down the page. And then when you turn the page to the fourth page, he had landed on the bottom and was crawling away. And there were little (laughs) dot, dot, dots (laughs) behind him because I wanted to make him look like he was going in motion. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, that is so... At four. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and then I and then I asked my mom how we could put it together, and she t- she taught me how to sort of like tie it together with yarn. So I still actually have the book. It was so cool that she saved it. That's amazing. So then you yeah. took art lessons after that. Did you know when you were a kid that you wanted to make books when you were older? Was that something you always wanted to do? Or well, what happened was when I was in kindergarten, my parents went to a you know, one of those teacher conferences with my kindergarten teacher, she said, your daughter's always drawing and painting whenever the kids are running around. She's drawing and painting. And I think you should sort of 
push her in that direction a little. So when I was about seven, my mom enrolled me in the Art Institute in Chicago. Hmm. Um, it was I was always interested in art, you know, all the way through high school, and I majored in graphic design, so that's where I was always at. And then what drew you to making nonfiction for kids? Your nonfiction, just, it's unique, it's singular, it's my favorite. Even when I'm introducing a topic to my older kids and high schoolers, we'll often start with your books because they're so well-researched, they're so informative and delightful to read. So I really feel like they just appeal to such a broad age range. And I'm curious to know what drew you to making nonfiction specifically, which has really become your specialty, right? Yeah. I was starting to do books, but my first few books were like a combination of fiction and nonfiction because two publishers I was working with were more interested in, I would, I hate the term, but they were into cute books. But I did a book called Willie and His Wheel Wagon, and then one called A Missing Maple Syrup Sap Mystery, which was a combination of fiction and nonfiction. And I had worked in television at NBC as a graphic artist. And the artwork that I did at NBC was had to be extremely graphic because the images were only on the screen for about 10 seconds. Um, it was for a children's show that was pre-electric company. <laughs> and the kids kept on saying, why don't you do children's books? But when I started researching children's books, I noticed nonfiction was pretty darn boring. It was you know, black and white stick figures or photo essays that were boring. And they were black and white photo essays, not Mm. colored photo essays, you know. I went to one publisher and she, I pulled out my my slides from my television background and she said, can you match up your artwork with nonfiction? And I said, why not? I mean, that's an area I love because the children's, you know, show I was on, was geared towards nonfiction for kids. It was called Take a Giant Step. And some of the kids on the show said, why don't you do children's books? So it all sort of fell together. But when I started researching, like I said, I noticed that there was a whole big hole in the nonfiction area that was just boring. And so I did a book called Clocks and How They Go, which was my first really straight head-on nonfiction book with very bold graphic covers, you know. It was very bold and graphic. Yeah. And that's how it started. That book was some, I don't know, it won some awards, and then all of a sudden everybody said, oh, do one for us, you know. So (laughs) it kept on going. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But as a kid, as a kid, I was curious about stuff all the time, and I thought it was sort of funny when I did clocks and how they go because I remember as a kid I took a clock apart because I wanted to see how it worked. Hmm. And of course, it all ended up in a shoebox because I couldn't remember <laughs> how to put, how it, to back. put it back together because <laughs> I was like eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I drove my parents a little nuts with um, asking them questions all the time. <laughs> so it seemed like a natural thing for me to go into. So what does um, that research just, look like for you now? Like when you're going to write a new book about a topic? Well, I guess before I ask you what the research looks like, I'm curious to know, how do you choose what you're going to write about next? How do you choose that next nonfiction What I choose? Topic? Yeah, I don't, I don't, the way I choose topics is in so many different ways. I mean, like an editor will come up with an idea and throw it at me. And if I like it, I like it. If I don't, I don't. Sometimes when I'm talking to kids, the kids will come up and say, how come you haven't done a book on well, whatever, you know? And so sometimes the kids give me feedback or I'll get letters from kids. 
and they have ideas. And my husband came up with the idea on doing a book on rainforests. So it, it, a lot of the ideas come from a lot of places, but it has to be something that really interests me or I just can't get into it. Yeah. I can't sink my teeth into it, you know, but it has to be something that I really am curious about. But okay. that's been my nature, like I said, since I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you're going to spend so much time with it probably. Well, actually, how long does that take you? Like from the time you go, okay, I think I'm going to do a book on this topic to the time when you turn it all in. <laughs> how long does that take? It, from the time I start, well, see, I usually I'm working on two or three topics at the same time. What I do is I'm, I'll be researching one book already for a book off in the future. And then I'm researching for the book I'm working on at the moment. Got it. And then I, you know, do my first going to the libraries and looking everywhere for the topic. And then I find an expert in the area. Because if you look at any of my books on the title page, on the copyright page, there's always a thank you to an expert. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed because that. Because I have found a lot of mistakes in nonfiction books. So a lot of the times the people who are my experts have, you know, picked up on stuff and have said, "What? where did you get this from? You know, and it was just bad information. Interesting. So I always go to like when I did my zoo book, uh, I dealt with a fellow named Jim Doherty at the Bronx Zoo. And a lot of a couple of my books, like my gorillas book I did with Holiday House. Jim actually got me and my husband in with 18 gorillas. And my husband does all the photo research. So he took over 300 photos in three hours. Wow. And I learned from being with the gorillas how they actually walk. And every, you know, on their on their front, you know, on the front feet hmm. or front hands or whatever you want to call it. So mm -hmm. it's called a knuckle walk. But every illustration I looked at in a drawing of a book was wrong. Ah, and yeah. Kent, it showed up in Kent's photos. The knuckle walk that I did in the book was right, but the books I was looking at were wrong. And so I talked to Jim Doherty, my expert again. I said, oh, gosh, I don't know where you got your reference from. And I said, I think the people just referred to other books and right. had it wrong for years. <laughs> right, that, that they were all so Anyway, what happens is yeah. it takes me usually from the time I research, I go through a series of writes and rewrites. Like the book I'm working on right now, I've rewritten it five times at this point because I usually overwrite the first time. So then I go back and cut text, cut text, cut text, work with my editor. And we cut more text and add things that we thought of later. And it goes through probably, I'd say, three to four months of back and forth over the phone, meeting in New York, stuff like that. And then once that's done, I go ahead and do the dummy, which is the visual part of the book, you know, rough sketches in a fake book form. Uh -huh. And they can get an idea with the art department as to what the book will look like, even though my sketches are really rough. Okay. And then I can start the artwork and pick out the typeface and everything once that's done. So from the time I start to the time it's done is about a year. Yeah. Okay. To a year and a half. But at one point I was working for like three publishers, but Holiday House was my favorite one. So i I just ended up staying with them. And they have most of my books. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And a new one that we're going to talk about in a minute too. So that's interesting. Yeah, so you always right. start with the text and then move to the illustrations out, which makes so much sense, of course. I know. I always start I always start with the research. Oh, thank you. Yes. Start with the research. Research is the most important part. 
Then I go to the text. Okay. Okay. But I have to, I have to do research and put it down and just let my head do some work on its own on a subconscious level. Mm -hmm. And I am also visualizing how the book will lay out because I can do that. I can sort of visual page and, you know, I can imagine in my head what a page turn will look like. Mm -hmm. So I sort of write knowing what page is facing what page. What do you think if, is the hardest? It does. Yeah, yeah. Which page? Because, uh, well, for our kids who are listening to and on families who are listening, so a page turn is exactly what you think it is. It's when you turn the page. And what we might not know is that children's book authors and illustrators plan and time those page turns very carefully to make you want to keep turning the pages, right? So they're all, it's not yeah, just... Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's that's, just, why, that's why in a lot of my books, you'll see a big illustration. And then on the next page, there might be three illustrations separate. And then the next page spread might be a double page piece of artwork. And that to me makes the book more visually stimulating. If it was one drawing on each page, to me, it gets to be boring. Yes. No, we're all, we're all pulling off the Gail Gibbons books of ourselves and looking (laughs) as we're listening to that. Let's take just a quick break here. Do you want your kids to fall more in love with books than ever this school year? Do you feel short on time or do you ever feel pulled in too many directions? I know it can feel impossible to give our kids a meaningful education and a delightful experience with books, especially if we didn't grow up that way ourselves. Even if we know that we want reading stories to be one of our kids' favorite parts of their childhood, we don't always know how to make that happen. Well, I'm a homeschooling mom of six from preschool to high school, and trust me, I know what it feels like to be pulled in too many directions, spinning my wheels, and not quite sure how to teach my kids in a way where I can still enjoy them and feel good about the kind of education they're getting. I wrote two books, Teaching from Rest, A Homeschooler's Guide to Unshakable Peace, as well as The Read Aloud Family, Making Meaningful and Lasting Connections with Your Kids. For moms who want to teach from rest, want to connect with their kids in a meaningful and lasting way, and want to fall back in love with homeschooling. In Read Aloud Revival Premium Membership, we know that your relationships with your kids matter more than just about anything else. That's why in Premium Membership, you get a regular dose of connection, community, and confidence. Connection to inspire your kids and ignite their imaginations through our family book clubs and also at live online events featuring today's best authors and illustrators. Community to get refreshed and rejuvenated alongside other moms who are connecting with their kids through books. You'll participate in these regular mama book clubs and masterclasses that are designed specifically to help you teach from rest and lead with confidence. I know you're short on time, and in Read Aloud Revival Premium Membership, we are focused on helping you spend that time where it matters most so that you can connect with your kids through books, you can teach from a state of rest, and you can fall back in love with homeschooling. Read Aloud Revival Premium can also take the place of your literature curriculum in your homeschool. We use a very simple three-step system that helps your kids deep dive into books while it also nurtures family relationships and wholeness at the same time. In our family book clubs, that three-step system is reading aloud, sharing experiences, and having meaningful conversations about books, and we show you how to do it step-by-step. Your kids' relationships with books will just never be the same once they engage in that way with 
their books and with each other. And especially once they meet the creators who write the words and make the pictures that tell their favorite stories. We bring the very best authors and illustrators to Read Aloud Revival premium membership in live video streams every single month. There is nothing else quite like it. If you don't want to let another school year get away from you, if you want to delight in your kids and in teaching them this year, if you're feeling a little burned out and stretched too thin, I invite you to join Read Aloud Revival premium membership to help focus on what matters most to your family, to teach from rest, and to make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. We actually only open doors to new members a few times each year, and the next time we're opening doors is August. So to make sure you don't miss it, head to rarmembership.com and request an invitation. That's rarmembership.com. I hope you join us and make this a fabulous year for your kids, for you, and for your whole family. Okay, so what's the hardest, what's the most challenging thing that comes up with trying to explain a topic in a picture book, a 32-page picture book? Condensing it, condensing the text. Yeah. Condensing the text so that it's all going to fit in 29 pages because you've got your cop, you know, your your title page, your copyright page. Then I usually, I sort of started out at almost like a new thing. I, I mean, I, I started adding extra interesting things on, and I would put it on page 32. So I'm, I have to make it so that each page is explaining something as short as it can possibly be, but clearly. And also, it's got to be fitting into 29 pages or 30 pages, yeah. which isn't easy. No. So <laughs> usually when I, write, when I write the first manuscript, it's usually terrible because I'm, I've got all this information in my head and on paper, and I'm trying to put it down, and it's usually too much information. So I put it down anyway, and that's when I start cutting. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I that's imagine. when I start saying, well, I don't need this. Like, I can, I can put this in a label uh-huh. instead of in the text or something like that. I see. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine because I know when I finish reading one of your books, there's so much that I've just learned. So it's from a reader's perspective, it's just enjoyable, of course. You're just reading and, and absorbing all this information. When I stop and think about how hard it must be to figure out what should go where and how you should say <laughs> it, <laughs> that has yeah. got to be massive. Yeah. Massive it's, project. It's, it's really hard. And I learned quite early on that if I used labels in my illustrations, it would bring attention to certain parts of the page. And it was giving information, but it didn't have to be in the text. Yeah. So I could reduce the text. I see. Yeah. Because then now the, the illustrations tell part of what you were saying. So now you can cut the words. Yeah. Well, and... I mean, you know that old expression, a picture's worth a thousand words. Yeah. Yeah. My pictures, my illustrations, if you look at the artwork, a lot of times you can pick up on what's going on the page without reading it, you know, because the picture is trying to explain a tremendous, about 50% or more of the information is, is in the artwork. Yeah, I can see. I'm looking at your newest book, the book that we're going to talk about in just a second, your book on flowers, which is coming out the same day that we're airing this podcast. So readers and listeners, oh, you yeah, great. you can go to your bookshop or library, go find it today if you're looking for it. I'm looking at the page on pollination, which is about halfway in, and it's one sentence of text, but there is so much information on this page because the illustrations 
are giving me a lot of information about. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's one that there, I think there was on like only seven words on that page. Uh, there in might, text, right? There's more now. Actually, there's two sentences now that I'm looking at more carefully. So. Two sentences? Yep. Okay, but the labels the labels are explaining what's going on with the pollination. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, if I had put that in the text, the text would have been too long. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm looking that's, at another page too in the How Seeds Travel book is another one where you have... Oh, that's one of my favorite spreads because it's so simple. It's so simple, but there's so much information. I can see all these different ways seeds travel and there's only like two sentences going on here. <laughs> but yeah. there's so yeah. much information in the in the really beautiful illustrations. So I can see the, the one that's stuck to a girl's sock and uh, one that's in the rabbit's mouth, one that's in the goldfinch's mouth, and then the dandelion seeds, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, right. it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then the ones that are just blowing around in the wind. Uh-huh. Yeah. The ones that are, you know, that I planted some flowers in a flower bed at home called bachelor's buttons. And those transplant, they just, they grew all over our place just by wind. It wasn't pollination. It was the wind that carried them and started them. Because wow. they just popped up. Every year they pop up in new places. <laughs> I don't know why people think nonfiction has to be dry or I mean to me the world we live in there's so much beauty in it and there's so many interesting things in it and because of like I said my tv background I had to really be conscious of color Mm. and I end up using a lot of bright colors because I needed that when I was working at NBC you needed a lot of color contrasts in order for it to transmit properly so that background carried over into the children's books because I just love color. Yeah, I can tell, <laughs> especially this flowers <laughs> book. There's so much yeah. color in the flowers book. Let's talk about this one. So this one's releasing today. And what are you most excited about or what was the most fun or challenging thing about this particular book? Because it's one of my favorite things I do in my life. Hmm. Is I, I live in Vermont, in central Vermont, and I'm really into perennial flower beds, but then there's one flower bed that's all annuals. Um, and I just, I just love flowers. I mean, we've, where we live in Vermont, we live in the middle of 300 acres, but I've, we've got some porches off of the house and I'm the one who planted all those flowers. I mean, like every single bulb, every single seed, lilac bushes, because I put that in the, in the book too. You know, I'm, I wasn't just talking about seeds and and bulbs. I, I was talking about, you know, wetland flowers and tropical flowers. And, you know, they don't, you know, kids don't live in the wetlands or in, in the tropics, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And that should have been included in the book, I thought, you know, uh, because they're so different than a tulip or, you know, or a dandelion. So I wanted to get all that information in there. But one of my favorite things is just getting my hands in the soil and planting things. And I love flowers. I always have, I have like six pots in my office that are always either filled with, you know, living flowers or, you know, flowers from the forest. I, I just, they're a thing I cherish. So to to do that book as a topic was a piece of cake. I mean, for excitement. Yeah, right. Because it's something I really am excited about. I did a book a long time ago called From Seed to Plant, but I never got involved in the flower part. It was just on how does a seed grow? Yeah, we have that book. I read it to my kids every Sunday. Okay. (laughs) 
Yeah, but this this I wanted this I really wanted to be a flower book because it's something that really interests me. Yeah. So one of the questions that kids always want to have answered from their favorite illustrators and authors is what were your favorite books as a child? I honestly can't tell you that I had a favorite book because I I was all over the place when it came to reading as a kid. I was enjoying books of all kinds, even National Geographic I was looking at. You know, like it was it was just like I didn't have a favorite book. I didn't I didn't have a favorite one like Peter Rabbit or or anything like that. I I just loved holding a book. Mm. It it was tactile. You know, I could hold it, I could look at the pictures. I liked young level books and older level books. If it was a coffee table book that was for adults, I enjoyed it anyway. The National Geographic collection was my grandmother's collection. And I just was curious about stuff way back then. And I couldn't read the words yet. And I was like six. But I was enjoying learning about things in the pictures. So it didn't have to be it didn't have to be a a book, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Most of the time it was a book. Yeah, But you know, it's interesting <laughs> when you say that is that I think your book, my non-reading young kids, the kids who aren't reading words yet, love looking through them. And I bet they learn just a ton from the illustrations, which is kind of what you're saying happened with National Geographic. You just look at the illustrations and look at the pictures, I guess, not yeah, illustrations so much. Exactly. But yeah. Yeah. So that's something that you're offering the world now with your books, which is really amazing. So. Well, I'm working away. <laughs> well, I'm working on a book on migration oh, cool, cool. right now. Where I live in Vermont, we're very remote, and we can really see the migration going on. But it's it's that's that's one topic I'm working on. But but then I'm also wanting to do a book on seashells. Ooh. It's a, a book I've always wanted to do. Oh, I I hope you do that one. That would be so wonderful. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I can Mary just, I can liked the it. idea. My editor liked the idea for seashells because where do they come from, and 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 why are they up on the beaches, and how do you find them? And people, I mean, there's these massive seashell collections and natural history museums and places like that, and they're all so different. My son, when he was five, I guess he was wanting to make money as a young kid. <laughs> he was. We lived out in Provincetown, and he would collect seashells on the beach, and he would sit in front of our house selling the seashells to people as they went by for 25 cents a pop. <laughs> and, and he just loved the seashells, though. You know, he loved collecting them, but he also liked making money. <laughs> That's so but funny. Anyway. Well, thank you. Thank you. I am so grateful for this time you've spent with us. I appreciate your time, Gail. Thanks. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. My name is Sarah, and I'm four years old. I live in California. I like little blue truck, and I like it because I like that part when he says, Get out of my way! Hello, my name is Crawford. I'm at the age nine, and I live in Georgia today. I'm going to be giving a review on Henry's Red Sea. We just finished it. It's about this Mennonite family who are who live 
lived on a farm in Russia, and they're trying to escape from a free country away from the Russian communists at the end of World War Two. I love love how it shows courage, faith, and perseverance. It's a very good book. It shows all those. I do highly recommend it, and just really, really, really good. My name is Betsy. I am 11 years old, and I live in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. My favorite book is Fable Haven by Brandon Mull, because however unrealistic the world in the book is, the brother-sister relationship between Kendra and Seth is very real. I'm Ben. And I live in Minnesota, and my favorite book is the BFG. I'm Lily, and I live in Minnesota, and I'm five, and my favorite book is All the Kind Family and Tilda and the Mountain and Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. My name is Bella, I'm 13, I live in Minnesota, and my favorite book is Matilda. I'm Allison, and I'm 37, and my favorite book is Matilda. Hi, my name is Ellie. I'm nine years old. I live in Midland, Michigan, and my favorite book is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I like it because it has a lot of adventure and exciting parts, and my favorite part is when Harry goes through a trap, which is a magic chess set. Hi, my name is Liam. I'm seven years old. I live in Midland, Michigan. My favorite book is Dorothy's The Stolen Chapter. I like it because there's a man named Nobody. Hi, my name is Lila. I am four and a half years old, and my favorite book is Jack and Beanstalk. And my favorite part is when Jack climbs the beanstalk. Where do you live, Lila? In Apple Creek. What state? Ohio. Hi, my name is Nora, and I'm five years old. I live in Queens, New York, and my favorite book is Salvaje by Emily Hughes. And I love it because it's really funny, and it's about a girl who lives in the wild, and it's in Spanish. Thanks, kids. I love hearing your recommendations. I especially love it when you name my own favorites. I kind of squeal a little bit over here. You just can't hear me. (laughs) Hey, if you want the show notes, if you want to see some of Gail Gibbons' books, some of our favorites that we recommend or anything else we talked about on today's show, you want to check out the show notes. In fact, the show notes are great for more than that. Our podcast manager, Kara Anderson, puts together these really awesome cheat sheets where she pulls out some great quotes, some favorite takeaways from the show. Basically, she takes notes on things so you don't have to. So if you are inspired or encouraged by something in this podcast you don't want to forget, go check out the cheat sheet. We also have a complete transcript for every episode of the podcast, and you can find those in each episode's show notes. So for today's, go to readaloudrevival.com slash 103. Thanks so much for listening. I will be back next week with episode 104 of the podcast. That'll be same place, same time on Tuesday. You will get that dropped right into your earbuds if you're subscribed. So make sure you go into your podcast app, whatever you use to listen to the podcast and hit subscribe so that you are first to know when that podcast is ready. Until next time, go make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Thank you.